welcome to episode four of the Mosin at Large podcast. It's Jonathan Mosin with you. We're going to be talking a lot of Apple things today with a comprehensive analysis of the Apple events and what it might mean for you. And we'll hear from you about your reactions to the Apple event and much more besides. A reminder that to be in touch with the show, you can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can write an email down or you can attach an audio clip using something like your voice memos app. You can call the listener line on 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. That's 864-606-6736. Apple's much anticipated September event is now behind us. And this year, they called it by innovation only. Heidi and Henry came over on the night before, which was Tuesday night, because the event happened on Wednesday, September the 11th, very early New Zealand time, at 5am. Henry stayed for some food and went home, because he said he likes his own bed too much, but he does like his food, so he came over for that. And then Heidi stayed over, and we got up at 4.30 on Wednesday morning, got ourselves organised, And then we got into watching the event. Not without some hiccups, I have to say, watching the event. And I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But let's focus on the Apple event. And I'm going to start by telling you a story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. When I was a kid, my parents decided one year that we would go away for Christmas. And there were five kids in my family. And the easiest way to go away was to have our Christmas presents early. And so the appointed day came and I had all these wonderful presents. And I remember, I think I got a big wheels ride on toy that year. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I hooned around the back of our house with it and had a great time. And we went off for our Christmas break and Christmas day came and I felt like I had been cheated of my Christmas Because for me, it was all about the ritual, getting up early in the morning, Santa coming, having all the presents with the family. And we didn't have any of that ritual. We just had a Christmas dinner that I don't think was cooked by us. I think we had some restaurant or something like that Christmas, and it just didn't seem the same. And I felt like I had been cheated of Christmas. And I'm telling you this in the context of the Apple event, because my initial reaction after the by innovation only event was, was that it? Is that really all they've got for us this year? And I felt very flat and let down. And I must say that I'm pleased that we didn't jump on the jolly old Mosin at Large podcast and do an instant reaction because Heidi was also very disappointed and we all felt quite underwhelmed. Now that I've had some time to reflect on the event... I like to think I can offer a more balanced perspective. And thanks to everybody who's written to say, what did you think of the Apple event? It's nice to know people care what I think. So for what it's worth, and your opinion and mileage may vary, here is what I thought. The first thing to say is that Apple's priorities are changing. When we think about Apple now, We don't just think about them as a producer of hardware, and we don't even just think about them as a producer of the operating system and apps that talk to that hardware and the holistic, seamless ecosystem that they've been famous for creating. A big area of Apple's focus now is on services. 
You may remember some time ago, Apple dropped the computer from their name and they just became Apple. And that really foreshadowed the kind of company that Apple is becoming. And so it's not altogether surprising that when the event began, they began talking about their new services that are coming. And in this regard, Apple surprised us because their pricing is a lot more competitive, a lot more aggressive even than their competitors and than we were expecting. I think that surprised a lot of people because Apple is not typically a leader on price. Apple's view has always been you pay a bit of a premium for the Apple experience and you get what you pay for and you get quality. But in this case, we have Apple Arcade and the Apple TV Plus subscription service. It's not clear how much of Apple Arcade, which is a gaming service, it's kind of like a Netflix for games. So you pay a monthly subscription and just like you pay a monthly subscription to Netflix and you get all the movies and TV shows you can binge. It's the same with games on this Apple Arcade thing. And when all the new software releases are rolled out for their operating systems, you'll be able to play on Mac, on iPad, on iPhone and on Apple TV. But it's not clear how many of these games are going to be accessible. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a section that showcased accessible games or even some sort of rating that told you whether the game was accessible or not? I suspect there won't be a lot of accessible games, but wouldn't it be great to be proven wrong about that? In terms of Apple TV+, Plus, I am presuming there will be audio description on Apple TV+. Plus. I think that as a community, we would have the right to be pretty disappointed in Apple if they didn't deliver that. But I do expect that they will deliver that. Apple TV+, Plus, if you're not familiar with this, is a very tiny competitor to HBO, really. And maybe it's a Netflix and Disney Plus, but I think HBO is where they're aiming. But HBO has a pretty limited reach, only the United States, I think. And it's available very widely, Apple TV Plus, at launch, again, at $4.95. It's interesting to note, too, that that $4.95, in the case of Apple Arcade and Apple TV Plus, does apply to family sharing. So it's great for families like ours, where we have our family sharing account maxed out with my kids who are on iOS and Bonnie and me. And so that one subscription will give all of us access to Apple TV Plus and Apple Arcade for that matter, if we chose to subscribe, which we will not. If you're going in to buy a new iPhone, then you get a year's worth of uh, Apple TV Plus as part of that package. It'll be interesting to see if the C series that Apple TV is creating causes some controversy in the blind community. C is a series which imagines the world well into the future where most people are blind. I guess it's the whole in the kingdom of the blind thing. Hopefully the one-eyed man isn't king. They say they've taken advice from blindness groups on this C series. So we will have to see how C goes down. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to Oprah. I like her stuff, I like her values, what she stands for, and uh, I'll be enjoying hearing about some of the books that she recommends and some of the documentaries that she creates. And The Morning Show with Reese Witherspoon, a series about working on a morning show, sounds like my kind of series as well. So a pretty small number of series to start with, but they say they're adding content all the time. And I guess, again, Apple is trying to 
be consistent with that brand, aren't they? That it's all about the quality rather than the quantity. So let's see how that works out. As I've had time to digest the Apple event and to think about the themes that were running through it, I think one of the themes that was very clear is that Apple is trying to reach out to more market segments. And so it's great to see an iPad that's coming in with very good specs at an education price of $299 US and a little bit more. As Apple tries to get its Braille stuff together, and they are far more advanced in Braille than Android by a very long way and have been for quite some time, but there's no doubt that Braille and Apple stuff has been very, very quirky and unreliable despite the advances. I'd like to think there has been some progress made in iOS 13, but it's not perfect yet. But, you know, eventually you can see, and I think this has already started to happen, you can see schools adopting iPads with Braille displays for kids. And as long as the experience continues to get better, then I'm actually really relaxed about that. I think an iPad is a bit of an icebreaker because parents know how to use them. Teachers know how to use them. Friends, peers can bond over them because this is a mainstream piece of technology that with a good Braille display and maybe a good Bluetooth keyboard, a blind person can use too. And as long as Apple does get its Braille sorted, I think that's great. So we have seen that very nicely specced iPad coming in at a pretty aggressive price point of an interesting move, an uncustomary move for Apple. Apple Watch, I must say, on reflection, I got a little bit more from Apple Watch than I was expecting in terms of new features, although the new features don't really apply much to me. The one that could apply to me and to you, if you are a blind person like me, is that even though Apple didn't comment on this at the event, they've doubled the storage of the Apple Watch Series 5, which was announced The previous Apple Watch had 16 gigabytes of storage, and now the Apple Watch Series 5 has 32 gigabytes of storage. That's significant because you've got the App Store built in to the watch now, thanks to watchOS 6. You'll be able to transfer more music across and just do a lot more. You know, you can use it as a pretty decent basic recorder for recording notes etc and so you've got a lot more storage to play with i actually have had on my apple watch the error that the watch is full so it's great to see the storage doubling on the apple watch and the base price not increasing for this new storage the big feature for most people is the fact that the screen is always on. So just like a regular watch, and like many other competitors in this space, a sighted person can glance at their watch and see the time. I don't think that will have much of any value for blind people. And if you can turn that feature off, perhaps you'll get a whole bunch more, well, a little more potentially, battery life. So we'll have to have a look at the watch and the user interface of watchOS 6 when you are running Series 5 Apple Watch. Another big one for blind people potentially is the fact that Apple Watch Series 5 comes with a compass. And if you are a traveler who uses those directions, the compass directions, this could be very handy indeed to have this accurate compass on your wrist. For those living in New Zealand like me, a big disappointment was that there is still no Apple Watch cellular in New Zealand. You can only get the GPS. 
And this appears to be an issue with New Zealand cellular carriers who have not equipped themselves with the particular kind of eSIM technology that is necessary to make this happen. One of our carriers in New Zealand, Spark, does support eSIMs now, but they don't support the eSIM technology that allows you to assign more than one device to the same number. And that's what's necessary to get the Apple Watch cellular working. You have to be able to have your phone and your watch associated with a single number. And no New Zealand carrier is there yet. I pinged the carriers on the Wednesday morning after the Apple event concluded and said, what's up with this? And got very excited because Spark said, stand by for an announcement. But it turned out that their announcement was that they hoped to have this sorted within the next six months. So I called Apple and I explained that sometime during the cycle of this Series 5 Apple Watch, it was likely that Cellular would come to New Zealand. And I said to them, given that I know that I won't be able to take advantage of the Cellular option yet, and I accept that and would be prepared to say so in any form, can you just sell me the Apple Watch Cellular watch that I have so I can go ahead and use it with Wi-Fi and do everything I want to do now? but be equipped. And they said, no, we can't do that. Sorry. And so I said, well, I guess I'll just keep my money and not buy a new Apple Watch until we get the cellular option here in New Zealand. Now let's talk iPhone. A lot of interest in iPhone. And I made some predictions about what we could expect in this event, some of which did not come to pass and some of which did. One thing I did not predict is again this theme that was running right through this Apple event, and that is aggressive pricing. They have come in with aggressive pricing on older devices, and I think this is fantastic news for blind people, many of whom are on limited incomes. And, you know, it's a big deal for many blind people to get these devices. It's a tribute to Apple that many blind people struggle and sacrifice to get an iPhone that they hope will last them a long time because they understand it is the best option out there for accessibility and that you generally do get really good value for money in terms of the years that the device lasts and is supported by operating system upgrades. But it's still a financial sacrifice. And so it is good to see that you can still get the iPhone 8 at a lower price than ever. And that's still got a really good chip in it. It is the same chip in the iPhone 8 that was in the iPhone 10, So that's great. And the iPhone XR, which was a big seller for Apple last year, their most popular phone, is still available as well. So hopefully that means that the Apple world is open to more people who want to get into it, but who've been hesitant because of the cost. Now, sooner or later, you are going to have to get used to the fact that home buttons are going away. Touch ID may well be coming back if all of the reports are true, but it won't be via a home button. It will be under the screen. If you really want to hold on to the home button as long as you can, you better grab the iPhone 8 now, because I would think that next year the iPhone 8 will be the one to be phased out. And at that point, you will find that there is no device on the market with a home button. It's possible, I suppose, that some new device will come along with a home button. They are making new iPads with a home button. So it's possible that there will be some new device of some kind that keeps it in, but I guess there's no guarantee. 
As I predicted in last week's show, we have three new phones, the iPhone 11, the iPhone 11 Pro, and the iPhone 11 Pro Max. So I did get that bit right. What's new in those phones that could be of value to us? I have to say, I think what we're seeing here is that smartphones are now a very mature product category, and it's hard to come up with something that makes you go, hey, wow, I have to plonk the money down for this. I mean, you can remember the iPhone 4S, and that was the device that you had to buy if you wanted to use Siri. And for many of us, that was enough to say, whoa, okay, I only bought my iPhone 4 last year, but I want this iPhone 4S because of Siri. It's possible that some sighted people, and maybe a few blind people, feel the same way about some of these new camera features because the camera features are significant. I think there's a bit of a mental block for some of us who are blind who have only recently, thanks to these smartphones, had access to cameras and we immediately switch off and we think camera yawn. So is there any chance that this could be helpful? Well, if you take photos, the new night mode may make photography quite a bit easier for blind people, especially blind people who don't have light perception, because it can sometimes be difficult to know how much lighting you have. Now there's a lot more artificial intelligence on the case, and the night mode means that they, they don't resort to the flash as much. And that means that when using the camera, you will get much more natural looking pictures in more situations. And that's great if you're a shutterbug. What I haven't been able to find out, though, is how many of these features are available to third party apps. And when I talked a bit about this on Twitter, there were some people who said, oh, of course, they'll be available to third party apps. You know, don't take that for granted until Apple actually tells us so. And I'll give you a very concrete reason for my skepticism about this. You may remember a couple of years ago, I think it all becomes a bit of a blur after a while. A couple of years ago, I believe it was with the iPhone 10. Well, maybe it was last year with the 10s. It was, <laughs> but they added stereo recording. You remember this? And many of us who like the idea of getting good quality recordings with having to carry around minimal kit. You know, you nothing will ever take the place of a good quality set of mics, but if you're in a pinch, you find yourself wanting to make a good stereo recording, how cool to be able to do that with your audio app of choice. And of course, this is par for the course on many Android devices. There are a number of Android devices that are actually recording in stereo using their built-in microphones. And you may remember that when I got whatever that phone was and we uh, unboxed it on the Blindside podcast and I made some recordings and I found that, in fact, the stereo recording feature only worked in the camera app and it only works in the camera app to this day. It's not exposed by any API application programming interface, which would be what is necessary for makers of third-party audio apps to use it. I don't think it's even in Apple's own Notes app. So the only way to get stereo audio recording on the built-in mics is to use Apple's camera apps. What I haven't been able to find out is whether that applies to some of these features or not. I called Apple and I talked to one of their salespeople. And right at the beginning of that call, I explained to them, look, this is a pretty technical question and you might need to transfer me. And sure enough, they did. They put me on hold and I got 
transferred to support in the end. And the guy from support, he was obviously the first level technical support because he didn't know what an API was. <laughs> they put me on hold. And in the end, after about 50 minutes, 50, 55 minutes on hold, the conclusion of that call was iPhone 11 Pro is not released yet. And therefore, we can't support you with it. So I have to say, I was more than a little bit underwhelmed. And I asked, could they not transfer me? Somebody must have a definitive answer to this. And the answer was basically no. However, I am a fundamentally optimistic person by nature. So let's assume that at some point soon, third-party developers will be able to control the camera that they use, whether they want the wide or ultra-wide lens. This will have significant benefits for blind people using object recognition apps like Seeing AI. Many people, for example, struggle to get the barcode reading apps on iOS working, such as Seeing AI and Envision, which give you a little bit of audible feedback about how close you're getting to the barcode. If the lighting doesn't matter so much, as I've just talked about, and the width of the shot can be controlled. So when you're in barcode scanning mode, it looks more widely for the barcode, then it could have a significant benefit on a number of these third-party blindness apps that we use. If you're using a live app for sighted assistance like Ira or Be My Eyes, You've probably experienced this when you're asking a question, maybe you're traveling and you're using your phone's camera and the person at the other end of the call tells you to pan your phone to the left a little and to the right a little or to just do a 360 spin so they can get a view of what's around. Obviously, if they can get a much wider view by having control over the width of the image they're getting in their screen, that's going to be absolutely massive. I just don't want to say definitively that it will and that you should plonk out the cash because I just can't establish definitively whether all of that will be available within third-party apps. We did see some really cool things with a third-party app recording from multiple cameras, and that's great. But just because some features are being exposed through an API, it doesn't mean that they all are. And so let's just see if we can find out what if any of these new features might be made available to third-party developers that could benefit us? One thing that will inevitably benefit many people is the longer battery life on all of these phones. This is great. The phones are ever so slightly thicker as a result of this. So this again bucks the trend that Apple has been on in recent times, where it seems like they've been almost obsessed with thinness, never healthy to be obsessed with thinness. You know, we know what can happen there. And Apple has certainly been that way, a little bit fatter, I think just ever so marginally, but it is definitely fatter and you get more battery life as a consequence, up to five hours longer battery life if you compare the 10s Max with the 11 Pro Max. So that's significant. Five hours extra is significant and that's pretty tantalizing. I think it's quite likely that the longer battery life, at least that much longer battery life, wasn't supposed to be one of the features that Apple would have been touting. There remain consistent reports from reliable sources that Apple, in fact, in these new phones, has the technology, has the hardware in place for the reverse wireless charging that I talked about on last week's show, where you could lie your AirPod 
case or your Apple Watch on the back of your phone and charge it. And word is that the placing of the Apple logo on the back center of the device was supposed to be a guide to show you where you put your device for this charging. So they plonked a bigger battery in there to take advantage of it. But for whatever reason, it's been disabled, apparently. And when I fix it, which is a really interesting site, which does funky things like take iPhones apart. Um, I, lo- I love reading this stuff. And when I fix it gets one of these new phones, we will know. We will know for sure whether there was this reverse or whether there is this reverse wireless charging in the device. If there is, then it's been disabled in software. And what remains to be seen is whether in a software update sometime down the track during the iOS 13 cycle or even beyond, they are able to enable it again. Clearly, they have struck something, which means that they are not happy with the user experience. Not a particularly good look for Apple, I have to say, because this is their second fail when it comes to wireless charging. Remember AirPower? They promised that. We waited and we waited, and then finally on a Friday afternoon, they quietly announced that AirPower was never going to happen. So now we have another wireless charging problem in Apple land. Also, there is no tile competitor. These are called Apple tags, I understand. We do, as I said we would, have the Apple U1 wideband chip in the devices that was supposed to make the locating of these Apple tags super accurate. In the marketing material for the iPhone, Apple talks about how they're going to use this wideband chip for very precise airdrop. Airdrop's this technology that you can use on your phone to send material like contacts and some files and various things from one person to another. And now with this wideband U1 chip, you can point your phone at someone else's phone and it prioritizes them in the airdrop list. And Apple says more is coming. And I still suspect that the more that is coming will be the Apple tag support. I think there's probably enough lurking about in Apple land, not yet announced, but nearly ready, that we may see another Apple event before the end of the year where we see Apple tags and and who knows what else. Devices that can take advantage of the U1 wideband chip are generally very low energy. They last a long time. And because of their nature, this could have really significant implications for indoor navigation. And of course, that's kind of a holy grail, really, for blindness navigation, isn't it? But indoor navigation is definitely a use case that I think Apple will be thinking about in the context of having this chip in the phone. So I look forward to seeing where that's going. Some blind people are still nervous about Face ID. Most blind people I talk to, and certainly when I was training people, I was able to train almost everybody, I think, uh, in the use of Face ID successfully. But there are still some blind people who struggle with Face ID and are frustrated by it. It's possible that they will get better luck with Face ID in these new phones. It's more tolerant. It's faster. And you should be able to do things like leave it lying down on its back on your desk, switch the phone on and have it unlock. So that'll be nice. There are some audio improvements in the new iPhone family, which didn't get a lot of stage attention, and they're not really getting much attention anywhere. There's a spatial audio feature 
And as I understand it, this will just make things sound a bit more real when you are listening to music or particularly, I would think, movie soundtracks. You know, I mean, you're still listening on phone speakers, aren't you? And when I watch a movie and really want to enjoy the audio, I want to crank it up on a good 5.1 system with a boofy subwoofer. And obviously your, your iPhone's never going to, well, I guess never is a big word, unlikely to ever deliver you that sort of sound, but it's supposed to sound more realistic. And Dolby Atmos playback is supported in the new iPhones. And again, if you want a really beautiful Dolby Atmos experience, you're going to have a subwoofer, you're going to have speakers in front of you, behind you, and in the ceiling. Can an iPhone deliver you just on its speakers? Well, no, um, but you might be able to get something kind of nice with the Dolby Atmos playback as well, and I presume it will also be okay for AirPlay if you want to AirPlay to a Dolby Atmos system. So there have been some audio changes, there has been attention paid, and that could mean that there are other changes that are more subtle, like the way that the microphones are processed. Are you listening to me, Neil? Ewers? Every time I get a new iPhone, Neil sends me an email and he says, can you make me a recording so I can hear what the, <laughs> what the processing's like? Oh, I love audio geeks. Wireless 6, also known as 802.11ax. What a mouthful. And it's no wonder that the, the, the wireless people, the people who make the standards for this wireless stuff, are trying to simplify the names. Now, if you want to take advantage of it, it means two things. You'd need to get a new router that broadcasts a wireless 6 signal for your iPhone to connect to and impress you with the super-duper very fast speed. But also, of course you'd have to have a super-duper very fast internet connection. This interests me because in New Zealand, the government has been lining our streets right across the country with fibre right up to our houses. And so we at the moment have a gigabit connection to the internet. And I can only really take full advantage of that gigabit connection when I'm hardwired on my laptop. So I'm very interested in the wireless 6 capability and uh, rocking very good speeds. It's a bit sort of theoretical, though, I have to say, because if you've got a good 802.11 AC connection, which I think is now called wireless 5 in the new nomenclature, if it's behaving itself, you're going to be able to do everything you want to be able to do, like several people streaming 4K movies, assuming you have the internet connection to facilitate it, and the wireless 6 isn't going to change that either way. Similarly, LTE probably does what most people that I can think of need right now. And Apple has introduced faster LTE with the new families of iPhones. Anything iPhone 11, whether it be the 11 or the 11 Pro, now has faster LTE. Some people who were able to do some quick speed tests have found that there's about a 13% improvement in speed. I guess that's pretty good really when you're looking at the current LTE speeds and what you might be able to download that little bit faster. Now there is no 5G in the iPhone 11 family, be it iPhone 11 or iPhone 11 Pro. I think I mentioned last week that I wasn't expecting 5G. I would have fallen off my seat in absolute surprise had there been 5G in this iPhone. This is absolutely archetypal Apple. And people forget sometimes history, don't they? 3G was well and truly established in many parts of the world by the middle of 2008. But it wasn't until the iPhone 3G in 2008 
that Apple came to the party and gave people a 3G connection. They were also a little slower than many to come out with LTE. If you want really cutting-edge technology when it comes to things like networking, notwithstanding the uh, addition of Wireless 6, which is kind of a bit out of the ordinary for Apple, then you don't really want to stick with Apple. If you want a 5G phone, you can get a Samsung product, and I think Huawei is dabbling in 5G as well, but there are a number of things you should know. First, 5G is rolling out quite slowly, and some of the 5G that is there now is using the technology that means that it has quite limited range. Also, the technology is still being bedded down at the handset end, and so many 5G phones have atrocious battery life, and they're overheating quite a lot, and when they do that, to avoid them exploding from the heat, they often go back to 4G. So I was not expecting 5G. I'm relaxed about the fact that there's no 5G in these phones. I would be far more annoyed to have a phone that got so hot in my hand that I couldn't hold it, uh, that drained my battery like nobody's business. I want Apple to get it right and then deliver 5G when it's a little bit more widely available and when it's a little bit more stable. Tim Cook giveth and Tim Cook taketh away. He actually taketh away in the iPhone XR last year when they took away 3D Touch. And I guess it was a bit of an experiment because last year's iPhone XS and XS Max had 3D Touch, but the iPhone XR had a technology called Haptic Touch. It's quite similar. It doesn't have multiple levels of sensitivity when you press. So you may remember that with 3D Touch, you can press to get a like a context menu, kind of like right-clicking in Mac or Windows. You can press harder and peek into certain apps or email messages. So it's, it's touch-sensitive, essentially. And they have found that, I guess, it's not being used very much. And I guess even if it is, I think the reason why we are seeing the end of 3D Touch is that we are being prepared for the underscreen Touch ID. And I think there may be a technical conflict between rolling out in-screen Touch ID and retaining 3D Touch. And I don't know about you, but I'd far rather have the underscreen Touch ID than retain 3D Touch. So if you get one of these new devices, you will have haptic touch, not 3D Touch. And if you have an iPhone XR, you are at the cutting edge because you've already been using haptic touch and you might be able to tell us whether you find it any less attractive than 3D Touch if you had that before. I get a flurry of emails and text messages from people after these events, and they always say, do you think I should upgrade? And of course, in the end, that's a decision only you can make. It's a very personal decision how you spend your money. But here are a few things that you might want to consider. I think the first thing to ask is, is there anything that your current phone doesn't do that you really want to do. Remember that iOS 13 is an incredible release. I'm just so excited by what they have packed into iOS 13, particularly from an accessibility point of view. This is the year, in my view, when iPhones truly become a viable content creation device. It's, it's a brilliant thing that Apple has done. And people who read my blog posts and things know that I'm no fanboy, I'm no sycophant. If I think Apple's dropped the ball, I'll tell you 
and I'll tell them. <laughs> In this case, I think iOS 13 is a fantastic release given all that they've done. If you've got an iPhone that is capable of running iOS 13, then you are going to have a faster, more capable iPhone anyway. It could be as good as getting a new iPhone. I think it's also important to think about how much money you have to throw at these problems. Some people are geeks and like being on the cutting edge. Some people, it's just a tool. You know, they don't get into it as much. They admire or appreciate or are grateful for what it does, but they don't live and breathe this stuff. It's a tool for them. If you are in that category and you have a device that is going to run iOS 13 for another year, my advice to you would be skip this year. The reason for that is that 2020 is going to be a big year. We might not get 5G and the underscreen touch ID in the one device next year. It's possible that one of those won't be ready or it's possible that purely for revenue generation purposes, Apple holds one back, right? They, I'm sure they do that stuff. But we will get one, I'm pretty confident. In 2020, we will either get a 5G capable iPhone or touch ID under the screen and we might be lucky and get both. If you're the kind of person that buys a phone and keeps it until the operating system upgrades stop, you really should try and sit this one out in my view if you can, because 2020 is going to be a really big game changer of a year for iPhone. If you think, look, I'm due for an upgrade this year, I'll buy it, and you're the kind of person that holds on to an iPhone for three, four, or even five years, what you'll find is that by 2021, 22, 23, and we are looking that far ahead. If you're that kind of person, 5G will be all over the place and you will be stuck with what will then be an antiquated 4G device. Now, what did I do? I really hummed and hawed about this and I went to work feeling quite confident that I was not going to buy a new iPhone. And then I thought about the times when I've strapped on my battery case for my iPhone XS Max and sort of made it more bulky because I was doing a lot of travel. In my role as a chief executive, I get a lot of calls and I have to answer emails, but particularly, you know, I get calls from people and I need to talk and that can drain the battery quite a bit, especially if those calls happen on Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever, and they have a video component. And so sometimes when I've been flying around the country, I have strapped on my iPhone battery case just to make sure I can make it through a really busy day and then I thought about the potential of seeing what it might be like with these camera features assuming that we do get the third-party apps and I said to Bonnie I don't need this but I am very fortunate I don't take it for granted and I know that I'm in a really rare position so you know and I've been on the bones of my bottom as well so I know what it, I do know what it's like to struggle but right now I'm pretty fortunate I don't have a lot of other kind of uh, vices that I spend money on, but I do enjoy getting the new iPhone and I use it a lot. And hopefully I can share a few things with others. So in the end, it was a really marginal thing, but I decided I would upgrade. What was also influential for me was that Henry, my wonder son-in-law, has got an old phone. I'm not sure if he's eligible for um, an iOS upgrade this year and he's a good lad and he can have my... 10s max so i waited until midnight new zealand time because they have shifted the pre-order time this year 
uh, midnight New Zealand time it was. It used to be 7 p.m., which was much better. And I got on there. You have a routine for these things if you're a serial iPhone pre-orderer. What you do is you go in and you add the one you want to your favorite. So you pick the spec. I got the Midnight Green 512 gigabyte iPhone 11 Pro Max. I added it to my favorites when the Apple Store was up. And then it came up for us at 12.02. I was closing the thing in the app switcher and opening it again like a knit went in there the moment the apple store was back up i just went to my favorites chose it checked out it was all done in a couple of minutes thanks to face id and my preparation the whole thing was extremely quick and i secured a 20th of september delivery Another thing that made it very marginal was that the price of iPhones in New Zealand has actually gone up because of the depreciating exchange rate between the US dollar and the New Zealand dollar. So it's much more expensive. I think it's about $400 more expensive to get the equivalent phone this year than last year. So ouch. I guess it's tempered by the fact that I hate cases on my iPhones. I don't see the point in buying a beautiful crafted piece of glass only to cover it up so I don't have to buy a case and so that's good it means that I do save a little bit compared with what uh, some people may be paying so we're set for the delivery on Friday I am looking forward to the extra battery life to hearing what the audio is like and I'm intrigued to see what we get in terms of any additional camera capability and ease of use from third-party apps in the blindness sphere Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, this is Aaron. So I've got a question for you. How do you look at Apple's products and, and use them um, when they have done some ethical and morally wrong things? And what I'm thinking about is uh, the iPhone 5S with the antenna gate, uh, the iPhone 6 with the bend issues and the bend gate, uh, the iPad Pro with the the Ben Gate, uh, and would you consider them always saying, "Well, it's you, the customer's issue; it's the customer's fault." Um, you know, as far as the iPhone 5S or 5, I, I couldn't remember which one it is, but it was that you're holding the phone wrong, or or uh, you know, don't uh, be you can't bend the phones with the iPhone 6 because because they'll break or they'll bend. Um, what, how do you continue to use that kind of technology when there are ethical and moral things behind it? Um, I can go on further and say that, you know, how would you do that when, um, or, or use the technology when they are charging a ton of money for, say, repairs above what the computer costs, and it would just be easier for instance, for a Mac, to get a new computer. Um, how do you justify that or how do you get around that? And the reason I'm, uh, I'm asking this is because I'm looking at getting a new phone within a couple of months. And I don't know whether to get an iPhone, which I've had before, or right now what I'm running is a Pixel 3. I really would like an iPhone, but justification-wise for me, I'm looking at the company ethically and morally and I don't want to give them money because, for me, that's paying into that obligation of 
basically we can rip people off and tell them that um, you know our products are better and and you guys will just pay what we tell you to pay. Well, Aaron, I think it is important that we think about the companies that we transact business with and where we spend our money. I'm a big believer in that, especially with things like fair trade. I try, for example, in my professional life and my personal life to invest money in companies in the technology space that are accessible or in businesses that believe in diversity and opportunity. And all of those things are very important. Also, in the context of technology, I'm very concerned about the way that my data is used. And that's why I got off Facebook. I am back on it now because in a job that I was in, I needed to be on it for work purposes. So I reluctantly got back on Facebook to participate in certain activities there. But the way that one's data is used is really critical to me. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I'm always quite hesitant to use anything to do with Google. And I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. The antenna gate issue dates back to the iPhone 4. So we're talking about June 2010. And it was Steve Jobs who said in an email that got quite widely circulated that someone wasn't holding the phone the right way. Obviously, that wasn't an official Apple position, but effectively, when the CEO says something, I accept it does pretty much become the company's position. Steve Jobs wasn't exactly very well then, as we now know, and he was also a pretty blunt person at the best of times. So sure, it's absolutely the case that companies are made up of human beings, and sometimes the human beings in those companies will say stupid, insensitive, inappropriate things. And that's unfortunate. And it was a very bad call indeed for Steve Jobs to say those things. It is true, though, that in response to the defect that was identified affecting some people's use of the device, that bumpers were supplied for free and they did take some corrective steps. If we are going to judge a company based on mishaps, I guess nobody would ever buy a Samsung device, would they? Because Samsung devices were exploding all over the place a couple of years ago with one of their note devices, and the device was completely recalled. The foldable device that they announced was not released on time because when review units were sent out, it turned out that it was in a disastrous state and they had to go back to the drawing board. I think that the iPhone 6 issue was a little bit more marginal, to be honest with you. If you're going to put a very thin device in your pants pocket and sit down, then yes, in certain situations it is going to bend. So I don't have a particular amount of sympathy for people about that one. In terms of the amount that Apple or any company charges for what they produce and how they maintain their products... That's a personal decision that every consumer has the right to make about whether they're getting value for money. But Apple's no different than any other company. You make it sound as if Apple's somehow dictating to people. They're they're absolutely not. In capitalism, in a free market, there is a transaction that goes on, right? A company decides, here's what we are prepared to supply this device for. And it's an invitation for you to purchase. No one's making you accept the invitation. If you think it's not value for money, then sure, buy something else. But no one's dictating to you. In every transaction, there's got to be a buyer and a seller for the transaction to take place. If they're selling, but you're not buying, 
There's no transaction. End of. You talked about the possibility of going to Google. And if a Google Pixel meets your needs, then you should buy one because I suspect you'll be able to get a Google Pixel potentially cheaper than some of the new iPhones. I would not buy a Google Pixel because it wouldn't meet my needs. I am benefiting a lot as a hearing impaired person from made for iPhone hearing aids. The Braille support on iPhone is much better than the competition. It is not perfect by a long way, but it's much better. And then since you raised the question of ethics and morals, I think it is important as a matter of balance to talk about the fact that one of the reasons why Google products are so cheap is that Google's key revenue source is advertising. They want to get you into their ecosystem because they are selling ads. They are collecting information about you and using it to target you with uh, a range of ads. Now, you may be fine with that, but I do actually value, and there have been a couple of missteps, absolutely, but in general, I value Apple's approach to privacy. I don't want to be the product. And if you get into the Google ecosystem, you are the product. You are the product because you're being targeted with ads. All sorts of things are being tracked. But the bottom line for me is that by and large, I believe that while charging a premium for their products, I get a good user experience. I've had very few hardware problems with my devices. On the rare occasions I have had issues, Apple has been outstanding about replacing things quickly and getting onto it. And they've been more happy about me being satisfied as a customer than anything else. And they've put things right. And I certainly appreciate that. But as a pretty busy person who uses my technology to the max, what influences me in the end is how much stuff can I get done with this thing? Now, for my particular use case, it's not even close, especially with iOS 13. I believe that Apple's accessibility experience is elegant. It takes full advantage of multi-touch, which TalkBack still does not. The software available is full and rich and functional. And it has had some pretty serious bugs at times, which I have blogged very openly about. Uh, some of the bugs in previous versions of iOS at release time in a blindness context have been atrocious. So no, Apple is absolutely not perfect. And I'm not one of those people who strongly puts myself into one camp. If Android met my needs, I would switch in a heartbeat. But whichever way you go, be mindful that to the best of my knowledge, there has been no technology yet produced by a saint. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tiffany again. I was aiming to watch the Apple event this week, and I had even planned for it. And I missed most of it because I had an unexpected grocery shopping trip. But I was honestly mostly unimpressed with the new iPhones, and um, I plan to set this one out. I bought my 6S in January, it works well, and it will support the new updates. So I'm going to hold on to that for a year or two and see what they come out with next year. But I am really excited about iOS 13 and playing with that and seeing how that works because I heard there's accessibility improvements in that and that it's supposed to make the old phones run a little faster so 
I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Tiffany. And iOS 13 drops on the 19th of September US time. That will be at 10 a.m. Pacific if you want to join the queue for that. And then iOS 13.1 will be released a little bit later in the month on the 30th. And that's when iPadOS is going to be released as well at the end of the month. Is iOS 13 going to be available on the iPhone SE and iPhone 7? Says Shirley Roberts. Yes. You're in luck, surely. So uh, you will be able to, uh, those with those devices, will be able to guess iOS 13. Sarah Hillis says, did you reverse your decision about using a case on an iPhone with wireless charging? You had said that it would be safer to cover the glass back now that it exists. Um, She continues in another tweet, knowing your hatred of cases, which I vaguely share, I bought a case for my 10R on your recommendation. The one I have is relatively unobtrusive, an Otterbox symmetry. But I just wondered about your current stance on cases. What I've actually found in real-world use, Sarah, is that in some cases, without a case, the wireless charger actually grips better and is more stable on the glass back of the phone i have my phone caseless at the moment sitting on a charger in the studio and it is really gripping solidly more so i do have as a kind of a backup in case i ever decide to use it the official apple case for this phone the 10s max but i won't be buying the official apple case for the 11 pro max that i'm getting and i just find it grips really well having the glass back directly on the charger and to some degree that may depend on the charger. Peggy Kern says, I thought I had heard at some point that the watch was going to be able to warn us if we were in an environment that was so noisy that prolonged exposure could damage our hearing. Did they say anything about that? What about the sleep tracker? The feature about hearing is in watchOS 6. So whichever watch you have, if it's capable of running Watch OS 6, then yes, that will be available when Watch OS 6 drops, which will be also on the 19th of September US time. So that will be the time that you will be able to update your Apple Watch to Watch OS 6. Sleep tracking did not make the cut for this release of Watch OS, and I don't know what that means in terms of whether work is ongoing, whether we might see that for watchOS 7, which won't be due until about this time next year. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair, and oh, uh, Mike. always interested in your thoughts on Apple's uh, pronouncements. So uh, that was interesting listening, to be sure, and uh, gave me a chance to enjoy a bit of my beer, and always <laughs> a good thing. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, uh, I also was uh, a little... You know, I expected a week of frenetic activity uh, with everything sort of coming at once, with iOS 13 coming a day or so, maybe at the most, later. I did not expect things to be so spread out. They staggered everything this year. So we've got the 19th as the iOS 13 release, the 30th as the iOS 13.1 yeah. release. That is unusual. Um, we've got, I guess, the the uh, game arcade service launching. I don't have huge expectations for that. I would have expected to see some moves about, you know, there's a lot of audio, great audio games that I think they could have grabbed 
um, to include the Papa Sangre stuff uh, was designed for everyone, blind and sighted. Uh, and those would have mean I would have loved to see those announced. Uh, maybe not in the keynote, of course, but but to know, and I think we would have known by now if they were going to be in the Apple Arcade. They, they had such star power and uh, and marketing and resources behind them. Uh, it's a shame we lost something else uh, to the gaming world. But uh, yeah, I you know there is App, Apple does really push developers in accessibility directions. So I suppose there is some chance that over time we'd see some accessible games, but it's a whole different proposition. Like I would have to know uh, that I would have at least minimum, you know, six to eight games available that I could enjoy fully that weren't just accessible by geek standards of, oh, I'll memorize the menu system here and I'll you know, pretend I know what I need to hear and, and enjoy it somehow. No, I want full accessibility if, if I would be subscribing to something like that. Wouldn't it be interesting if Blindfold Games was folded into the game arcade because they've got a squillion games and if you could pay a subscription that gave you access to all of them, uh, we might be on track as well. Uh, it does sound like they're really going for quality there and they're going to have 100 games available at launch. That's staggering in and of itself. So I think for sighted people, there's a very good chance of satisfaction. Uh, they'll subscribe and they'll be happy with what they get. For accessibility, I think it's a very big gamble and not one I'm going to take right now. Apple TV Plus, on the other hand, I will be checking out. Uh, I think that is a pretty sure bet. And uh, I think I'll, I'll get enjoyment from that. Uh, I, I'm still enjoying the Apple News Plus. Uh, that that uh, has has still uh, been great, and uh, so you know those two services. That's you know sixteen bucks a month, really. I'm glad I got my 10R. I have no post event regrets about that. Uh, I'm gonna enjoy it for three or four years, give or take, and then see what uh, when, when I'm ready to jump at that point to the new phone. I'll you know. Uh, as you say, everything will be established, the 5G transition, the major design shift, and uh, we'll be able to upgrade then. So I'm kind of looking three, four years and uh, thinking I'll be pretty happy until then. Mosin at Large Podcast! The one thing I would say about iOS 13 is take a look at some of the blogs to do with bugs. It's not possible, as I understand it, under Apple's NDA to talk about those. And I, I respect that because there may be bugs that get addressed before release. And it's not fair to influence public perceptions when they're in beta and when bugs could be fixed. But I just would caution people to, uh, sure, be excited about iOS 13, but also check out what bugs might exist. There will be some features coming to iOS 13.1, but I don't think that's the only reason why iOS 13 is being so quickly followed by iOS 13.1. And Kelby Carlson says, I'm curious to know your opinion on the following. Well, I shall offer it, and it'll be worth what you paid for it probably, Kelby. Believe it or not, says Kelby, I still use iOS 11. The reason for this is that by a long way, the app I use most is Voice Dream Reader. Apparently, in both iOS 12 and 13, there is a bug where iOS voices no longer work in that app. I like to listen 
uh, at extreme fast speeds, and I have found it is much harder to do so with the third-party voices available in Voice Dream. I know that you use Voice Dream a lot. So I wonder if you have encountered this bug and whether it is actually that bad. I really would like to upgrade to iOS 13, but I won't do it if it costs me the iOS voices in Voice Dream. Kelby, I have not seen this, and I don't know whether it's a particular voice, but I use iOS Daniel, as you know, if you hear me winding up my phone, and I also use iOS Daniel on my Voice Dream Reader, cranked right up. We do crank it up, don't we? Crank it up. Yes, we do. We crank it up. Crank it up. And I have not seen this at all. I'm using Voice Dream for everything, because I, when I'm delivering a presentation and I have notes... I load my notes into Voice Dream Reader and I read from Braille. I read lots of books in Voice Dream Reader. I send news to Voice Dream Reader through Instapaper. I mean, I use Voice Dream Reader a lot and the only voice I use with it is the iOS Daniel voice and it's rocking. So no, I can't confirm that. It does work in that use case perfectly well for me. I don't know whether there are some other limitations I'm not aware of with certain iOS voices, but it's working great for me. Kathy Blackburn sent a tweet and said, I had to get a case for my iPhone 8 because it is so slippery. It would slide off the desk where the power strip is. Fortunately, the floor is carpeted. She says, I did not hear the Apple event because I was with friends that afternoon. I've listened to summaries and reactions from other podcasters. What? You mean there are other podcasters? And I don't see any reason to upgrade from my iPhone 8 or the GPS Apple Watch that I have. I won't upgrade until the underscreen ID comes to pass. As you have pointed out, Face ID is less discreet than using the fingerprint sensor. I don't want to have to whip the phone out and put it near my face every time I want to do something. You could leave it unlocked, of course. This is another thing I find interesting is how many people leave their phones set to automatically lock after a preset period. And this is a feature that if I'm setting iOS up from scratch, I always disable right away. If I want to lock my phone, I'll push the button. Thank you very much. And so I do have my screen brightness set to zero. I do the power saving features, but there are times when I just leave the phone unlocked in my pocket because I know that I'll want to access something and I'll get to a charger soon enough. So you could always do that. Just leave the auto locking thing off. It's a nuisance. Here's Petra. Hello, Petra. And she says, good morning, Jonathan. You were getting the color I thought I would get if I got a new iPhone. Yeah, the midnight green apparently looks very good. I, I consulted some experts on this. I will hold on, says Petra, to my iPhone SE for another year. I understand it will be usable for now. Yes, it will. I was only slightly interested in the Apple Watch Series 5. I would like a compass and I thought the bright white color would be very nice. I just got the Series 4, so I'll wait on that also. Good evening from sunny Coventry, England. This is Matthew Horsepool with some thoughts on the Apple event, and I've been watching these events for, I don't even know how long now, quite <laughs> a long time. You're a veteran, and, mate. Um, well, 
it was over quickly. This, this one, wasn't it? They didn't hang around. They got the whole thing over and done within an hour and a half, somewhere like that. And um, it was very interesting uh, that that happened. Um, it made it less boring, but uh, underwhelming, I think, is still a fair analysis, certainly for me. Uh, I can see that there are some innovations in terms of the Apple Watch and the always-on display, although I'd be interested to know how that works with voiceover, because uh, if the screen can't be locked, then you could have voiceover doing all sorts of weird and wacky things. And um, I'm sure the iPhone uh, 11 Pro with its new cameras is cool, but um, not much interest to me, because OCR is pretty good as it is already, and that's all I would ever use it for. Um, interesting spatial audio, but not enough for me to warrant an upgrade from where I am at the moment, uh, which is only an iPhone XS, uh, only as in, you know, it's only a year old, so I won't be upgrading. But um, they're worthy products. I have bought a new Apple Watch because I'm on an Apple Watch Series 2, so it will be a cool upgrade nonetheless, and uh, look forward to continuing to see what they come out with. Thank you, Matthew. Good to hear you. And it will be interesting to see how you get on with the Series 5 and that always on. I think you make a very good point about the potential voiceover dangers. But I also know that when it comes to user interface, Apple generally have this sorted. So let's see how that goes. But I'll be curious to hear how it goes. Maybe give us a call. You'll have it by this time next week, won't you? So I'd be interested in a follow-up. When I was talking about the Apple event, I mentioned that we had some trouble getting it going, and we did, because we haven't used the Apple TV for a few weeks. It lurks in the corner, and it acts as a home hub, but we have so many ways of consuming content these days that we don't use the Apple TV all the time, but it is important for our home automation and our home hub, and I had noticed some difficulties with home automation things outside the house, but I attributed those to the fact that I finally took the plunge and upgraded to iOS. So Heidi and I were up at crazy o'clock, switching everything on, and the Apple TV was as dead as a dodo. It had ceased to be. They joined the choir invisible. If we hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would have been pushing up the daisies. And we unplugged the thing and plugged it back in, and we did everything we could think of, and it just would not go. And I said to Heidi, next time you come over, Heidi, bring the power cord from your Apple TV and we'll try it and see if it's the power cord. But that didn't work either. And the only thing I can attribute it to is that we did have the most phenomenal lightning strike a few weeks ago, just as Bonnie was going to her romance writers conference. Man, I thought she'd exploded out there like Mrs. Knickerbaker from Monty Python. It was so loud and it did affect our alarm system. It sort of came back up. We got that sorted out everything's plugged into surge protectors and it didn't affect anything big like computers or anything, but it does appear to have fried the Apple TV. When you get a device that small and it's about three years old, I think you kind of cut your losses, don't you? And you think, Oh, if, if, if we're going to continue with Apple TV, we'll probably just need a new one. Luckily I have access to this reward points program from my credit card. And when you go into their store, you can shop for all sorts of things. And last time I looked in that store, which was a while ago now, they had a lot of apple soup. And so I went into the um, store and sure enough, we could get an Apple TV free. Wow. The 4K version and everything. And so we now have a free 
replacement Apple TV coming our way shortly. We'll be able to rock the Apple TV Plus and also enjoy, of course, the HomeKit features that having an Apple TV affords in terms of being able to run HomeKit type um, functions when you're outside your house, when the Apple TV is ap- acting as a home hub. So that is truly epicness. Mosin at Large Podcast. Jonathan, hi, it's Robin Christofferson in the UK. Hi, here. Robin. We're in the ancient city of Warwick in the Market Square, and the girls are looking at jewellery and that sort of thing. So I've got lots of time <laughs> to. Oh, dear, dear, dear. This you won't have money message. for apple soup. So loving the new podcast. Really, really good. Uh, I have a technical question. From one podcaster to another, how do you record your podcasts in your den, in your home studio? Are you using a mixing desk? Are you using some sort of station playlist software to queue up your audio effects, your jingles, etc.? What mic are you using? So basically, what's your hardware? What's your software? Have you got lots of uh, acoustic foam? around the walls etc that sort of thing i would really love to know i always like to know how podcasters do their magic and of course the skill the consummate radio skill that you have oh my isn't word oh my word can be easily reproduced but at least oh, i can just such know a what technical <laughs> setup you've got thanks a lot and keep up the good work oh so we're going to do some audio geekery are we now robin all right well first of all this podcast is a little bit different from other podcasts i've done in the sense that the podcast which is called mosin at large for those who don't know because you could be listening live to this the podcast is a little sort of what's the word anthology of bits from the live radio show the mosin explosion which goes out every sunday every saturday sorry it's sunday my time but every saturday at 2 p.m u.s eastern time and 7 p.m uk so all this stuff is is live and when the show is over I have an uncompressed, as in no dynamic audio compression, recording of all that I did for those four hours. So when we go to Mushroom FM, we send out a processed audio stream to make sure the levels are nice and even and it sounds good on smaller devices and all of those things that radio stations typically do. But separately, I am making an uncompressed, lossless recording of everything that I produce. And yes, I am using a mixer. It's an Allen and Heath Z22FX mixer. I love this thing. I have a Heil PR, we have two actually Heil PR40 microphones. I got those about two or three years ago. Thanks to Glenn Gordon. He said, actually, I think you should get the Heil PR40. Why why don't you get the Heil PR40? He was right. I took a bit of persuading, but the Heil PR40s are very good mics. I love working with them. They're like quite a sensitive instrument. And you have to get used to working with them. You have to get used to the placements. There is actually a bit of acoustical bounce in this room. And Glenn, through FSCast, he would say, you know, you've got a bit of acoustical bounce in your room. And, and the reason for that is that we, we changed some furniture and it increased the bounce. And the old microphone I used to use really picked up a bit more of that bounce. The high LPR40s are incredibly directional. You've got to be right in front of them. And they, um, that they're good for this sort of environment. So no, we don't actually have any acoustic foam on the walls. Uh, Station Playlist Studio, fantastic package. We do that to run the Mosin Explosion. 
and the companion SPL streamer product to take audio from the mixer and stream it to the universe. The podcast itself, I'm doing it pretty quickly. And so I'm using Studio Recorder from APH to just slice and dice and splice it all together. If I were ever to go back, and it would be a bit time-consuming, so I'm trying not to do it, but if I were ever to go back and uh, insert chapter markers so people can skip between sections of the podcast, I would have to go back to using Reaper, where it, which is an amazing multi-track digital audio workstation, and then I would be able to um, insert chapter marks and do some more things. But it's it's quick and easy with APH Studio Recorder just taking the material from the lossless audio that I'm generating from the live radio show. So there you go, Robin. I have no secrets left to tell you. Mosin at Large Podcast. Welcome, Bonnie Mosin. Hello. How are you this marvellous Sunday? Good. Yes. How are you? I am incredibly well. Thank you for asking. Cool. It's amazing. And Eclipse is here too. We had a really good customer service experience the other day, and I think it's always good to show some gratitude and talk up good customer service because we're all very quick, aren't we, to jump mm-hmm. on and complain when we get bad customer service. So I, we had a good experience, and it all started when Heidi and Henry came over the other day and they were knocking on the door. And I thought, what is, what is this knocking on the door business? And it turned out that the little spring in the mm-hmm. button of the Ring video doorbell had broken, and yeah. so when you push the button, it didn't really contact the little thing to make the doorbell ring, and that's why they were knocking on the door. It was detecting motion okay, but people couldn't ring the bell. Yeah, We have had a few door-knocking people recently, yeah. and I wondered what was up with that. So that's the cause, and I got on the phone and uh, called Ring, who seemed to be available, well, they were available about 7 o'clock at night when we called them in New Zealand, so that was impressive, and they have a local New Zealand number, and I called the ring person. I got someone called Heidi. And I said, yeah. oh, that's my daughter's name. Yeah. And explained the thing. And she said, can you send us a photo of the defective button? And so we did that. And then she said, you purchased your doorbell in July of 2018. And if you were in, I think you said if you were in Australia, the UK and the US, we have a three-year warranty mm-hmm. on the doorbell. But if you're in New Zealand, which you are, there's only a one-year warranty on the doorbell. And I thought that is really kind of, oh. yeah, really blah. And so I said, well, yeah, you could put me on hold, couldn't you, and have a chat to your supervisor because I know that Ring's customer service is legendary, legendary. And you might be able to do something for me, don't you think? So she put me on hold. She came back and she said, yes, we will send you a free ring video doorbell. And she said it might take about seven to ten days. But that was on the Tuesday night. And on the Friday, it, it. it had arrived. And yeah. um, Henry, the wonder son-in-law, came and he swapped us out because we've got the Video Doorbell Pro. And the reason mm-hmm. why we got the Video Doorbell Pro was that it supports 5 gigahertz wireless. And we have got so much 2.4 gigahertz yeah. wireless activity here. It's insane. So I got the, the the Pro, which needs to be professionally wired. But we turned the power off in the right place, and Henry did it. And now we're up and running again with a new video doorbell. So that's excellent customer service. And, and they, they sent us a paid label to ship the old doorbell back, and, and we're sweet. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's and something keeps making motion at our door. I don't know. I think. Well, I think what's happened is that we've got our motion perhaps a little bit too sensitive, uh-huh. and we had to adjust it. I remember when we got the the first video doorbell, it was giving. I don't know whether it's false triggers or or what, but whether it's seeing something in the street or. Uh-huh. But you do have to tweak. Yeah. Where it's seeing motion from. <clears throat> uh, however, you don't want to get it too narrow either, or you might miss something. Th- something, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I was really impressed with that. That that that's what you hope for when something with goes wrong. Customer service. Yeah, yeah. Any yeah. hardware will fail, but it's how you looked after that really determines. And you and you walk away having perhaps more respect for the company than you originally started with. Exactly. Yeah. What else is happening in your world? I went to a two-day training on the eyeball, on vision loss. That was interesting. Training on the eyeball. Yep. We had eyeball models called Isla. Well, they weren't squishy. They were just plastic. All right. And I, we also had a lot of tech. Why didn't you just grope someone's prosthetic eye? Ew. Well, why not? Ew. We also had tactile diagrams, which I can't read tactile diagrams. Some people can. This is a really interesting subject. I can't either. I remember. They make no sense to me. Yeah, they make no sense to me either. And when I expressed this view as a kid, I was kind of considered a heathen or something. But somebody, an older blind guy said to me, what they're trying to do is simulate a three-dimensional thing in a two-dimensional way. Yeah, if it's three-dimensional, that's different. But two-dimensional doesn't work, which – and I, because I have seen before, I'm very visual. So if someone describes it to me, I can picture it in my head. But if you give me some tactile diagram, it makes no sense. No, and yet for many it does. And yeah, I, I remember do. being in class and they gave us this tactile thing on it, like a, like a thermoformed page, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I felt all these lines and squiggles and funny little shapes and everything and I just had no idea at all what this thing was supposed to be Mm -hmm. and then another girl in my class she looked at it and instantly she said it's an elephant yeah and they said yes it is an elephant how do you how do you know it's an elephant? I, I, they, tactile diagrams do not make sense. Now, maps, that's a different thing. I can, you know, a good map's all right. Yeah. But tactile well, diagram. A tactile diagram, it depends on the diagram. I probably would have known an elephant. Would you? Yeah. Because I know what an elephant You know looks the old like. Buddhist thing about the blind man yes, and the elephant? Yes, and the elephant. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's so bizarre. <laughs> but, um, but some other things I would not have, would recognize, you know. And a lot of it depends on the diagram because not all diagrams are created equal, mm-hmm. um, and they don't look like what they look like in the in the wild. But um, for the most part, they're I like I just rather listen and form my thoughts in my head. Yeah, you know, my picture. So we had diagrams, and it was interesting. I learned a lot. Um, so it was kind of squeamishing. The eye is a very complicated organ. Um, but can I just ask a controversial question? Mm-hmm. Why do rehabilitation professionals have to know about this stuff? If you're in the blindness field, doesn't you know? Aren't we in danger of reinforcing a medical model of disability when people are doing all this stuff about the? I mean, surely it's it's about the impact on your life that counts, doesn't it? Well, a lot of medical people do not know how to explain to patients, or they explain in a very non-professional way what's going on with their eye. So I think it's important for those working in the field to understand. There are so many things that can cause vision loss. 
and they're so and they're all different. I mean, what one person is experiencing, and that's the the thing they get together in groups. And well, this person's macular degeneration, and a lot of times a doctor will just say, "Oh, you're going to lose your vision." They don't tell you it may be ten years. They don't tell you it's not going to be all. So I do think it's important for professionals to understand what they're working with. I mean, if you have someone coming in and I've got these cataracts, you need to know what a cataract is or what macular degeneration is. And Who how does? A, a vision professional. I think they really need When, to when you say vision professional, you're talking about people, people in blindness people. agencies. Yeah, okay. blindness agency yeah. people. Because doctors don't always tell their they they See, don't I call them a blindness professional. You're a blindness yeah, professional, yeah. whatever. So, so I I really get I really it pushes the term vision teacher totally pushes mm-hmm. my button. Yes, here's a message from Sarah Hillis about tactile diagrams, and she says I remember feeling a tactile representation of a Windows XP desktop screen. Yeah, there was a series of diagrams from I think her name was Sarah Morley who did a book of these. She said, before then, I had never understood where different things were placed on the screen. I had never known how huge the start button was, for instance. I do agree with that, that those Windows diagrams were incredibly helpful, and I still remember the title bar. Um, They were... They were good, I guess, because they're, they're, the screen is a fairly simple object, isn't it? Yeah. You know, well, sort of rectangular thing. What I did was I just had someone put my hand on the computer monitor and show me. Interesting. Because that made more sense than the tactile thing. Marvelous. Yeah, all right. Yeah, but so you people, didn't find the tactiles helpful even in that situation? I don't remember finding them helpful. I'd, right. I'd have to see one again. Do you remember that Tom Decker sent us I was us just thinking that, a, yeah series of diagrams on iOS, I think they're okay. So I'm not yeah. sure what the variable is. Um, I think some of it, and this is the same thing with sighted people, I think some of it's just your learning style. Right. And mine is very visual. Yeah, I mean, there are some sighted people who just can't read a map. Oh, no, they can't read a map to <laughs> save their life. Gee, you know. <laughs> um, my mom would always tell the story about my grandfather, who was not an architect, who was not an engineer. And they were building some kind of bridge or something. I can't remember what it was. And the guy, the head engineer, couldn't read the blueprint. But my grandfather, I don't even know how they, how he got involved in this, but he could. Hmm. You know, he'd never had the training, but, oh, this makes sense, you know. And some things are just are just very natural, you know, and others are, are which I think is why we get in trouble with saying all blind people should be able to read the Braille map. Well, no. Because not all sighted well, yeah, people. Well, why, why impose a higher standard? Yeah. yeah. And anything else to report before we go? We have got a, a, a longish message from Nick Zamarelli to mm. play. But well, I'm the, reading a horror novel in Braille. Cool. Yeah, it's hard. And something bad's going to happen. I can feel it. Boy, I was having blind jokes at the office the other day. Like the one about um, what's the definition of endless love? Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder playing tennis. Oh, goodness. Oh, that reminds me of the game that I played um, <laughs> called Swish. Oh, Swish. We um, had our youth group at work the other, the other evening where the young blind people come in and do different things, and they made tacos. And uh, We played this game called Swish, and we have this table in our office, and... There's paddles, and you and a two get on each side of the table, and you you paddle you 
serve this ball across the table, and there's different rules, and you have to block the ball. If it goes off the table, you score, and you just you paddle it back and forth. They call it. You're supposed to swish it. You can't. The ball can't go five centimeters off the table. And it's not a blindness specific game, I don't think, is it? I think I've heard of this just everywhere. Or is it blindness specific? I don't really know much about yeah. it. Now, shall we ask the drinker? Uh huh. Soup drinker. Tell me about the game of swish. Sorry, <sighs> I'm not sure about that. Okay, well, I'll just try soup drinker. What is swish? The verb swish is usually defined oh. as to move with or make a sibilant Soup sound. Soup drinker. As a Stop. Jeez. Anyway, somebody will tell us about swish. But I had so much fun with it. And you blindfold decided participants. Oh, my goodness. And you just jump back and forth. And it was a competitive game of swish. Mm. So I said, man, they need to make this a Paralympic sport because I could get into this. And they're like, are you sure you've never played this before? I'm like, I'm positive. I played badminton, badminton when I was sighted, and someone tried to teach me tennis without when I was blind. That was kind of fun. But they are working. There is a tennis club in Wellington that's wanting to do some blind tennis, and they're trying to adapt it. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of blind people making a racket about that. Mm. Hey, Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. I'm uh, recording this on my brand new Galaxy S10e. Whoa. Samsung Galaxy S10e, of course. Just upgraded uh, about 10, 11 days ago. It was when I got it. And I have a whopper of a customer service experience story for you that you just won't believe. Let me describe the issue first. In every Galaxy phone that I've ever owned, there is a feature in accessibility settings, whether you're using Google TalkBack or Samsung's equivalent screen reader called Voice Assistant, wherein you can go into settings and you have a choice there to mute speech using the proximity sensor. And I discovered that Samsung doesn't even have this as an option in its Voice Assistant settings, and I couldn't believe it. I looked, I had my cousin, who's totally sighted, look, he couldn't find it, he did some work online, discovered that there were some proximity sensor issues within the phone, which is the case because I went to a Verizon store today and I had the gentleman look and I showed him, of course, because he wasn't familiar with too many of the accessibility settings. We tried to enable this same functionality on a Galaxy Note 9 it worked, and we tried to enable it on a Galaxy Note 10 as well as my S10e. It didn't work. I showed him that in Google TalkBack, the option is there within the settings to mute the proximity sensor, but it doesn't work when you enable it, which it's enabled by default, you try to... Um, Use it. It doesn't work. You wave your hand in front of the proximity sensor on the S10e. Nothing happened. That wasn't my disaster customer service experience. This gentleman was very nice, even though he was not familiar with accessibility features, which many of them are not, as you know. My disaster customer service experience came yesterday when I called Samsung and tried to 
ask them about this. And the gentleman that I got was trying to tell me that voice assistant and Google Talkback were the same thing. He just would not hear anything else. I tried to tell him, no, Google Talkback is not the same as voice assistant. Voice assistant is Samsung's equivalent screen reader on all Samsung phones. He just would not hear it. And so there was no point in continuing the call. I got very, very frustrated, disconnected the call, and I blasted him today on an online survey because, as I said, he just wouldn't hear it. It was awful. Probably the worst customer service experience I've ever had. Very, very unfortunate. Um, and just as an aside, the fingerprint sensor on the Galaxy S10e is no longer located on the back of the phone as was the case with previous Galaxy phones, it's now located on the power button, which is located on the right side of the phone. And this is really handy if you want to use the phone while it's in a charging stand, like the one that I have beside my bed. I don't have to lift it out of the charger to unlock the phone now. I could just tap the power button and bingo. It's kind of cool. And I really do hope that Apple brings back Touch ID, and when they do, rather than an in-screen touch ID, which I know they're planning, it would be great if they could put it on the power button. I think it's very, very handy. Speaking of Apple, great job uh, on the event. Uh, uh, your event analysis was excellent as usual. My stepdaughter has the iPhone 8, and she really wants the iPhone uh, 11 Pro Boy, it's going to be expensive. I'm, I'm really not looking forward to that. But she has really been through it, the poor thing. So I, I'm probably going to fold and, and do it for her. You're a good um, stepdad. But there again, I'm looking forward to your impressions when yours arrives. So hopefully you'll deliver those to us. And I'll be uh, very interested to hear your opinion before I go ahead and, and perhaps grab this for my stepdaughter. Here is Dean in Melbourne, Australia, who says, just to clarify, Swish is a blindness-specific sport that is played in Australia. It is played throughout Victoria and Brisbane as well. It was invented by the late Ray Hanna, who was based in Sydney in the early 1960s. It's not a Paralympic sport. However, a national tournament is held every year between Victoria and Queensland in Melbourne. Thank you very much, Dean. So it is blindness-specific. That's really interesting. Bonnie thinks that I would like to play Swish. So I should I should do that. I should give it a go. Tristan Clare writes a long message with the subject line, in defense of NVDA. Hi, Jonathan. A quick email, she says, to respond to the comments you made on your first podcast regarding free screen readers such as NVDA. Before I get into that, thanks for the podcast. I don't often get to catch your radio show live, so it's really cool that I can get the highlights on demand. As for NVDA, I think there are a couple of compelling use cases for it, particularly in developing countries or for people whose screen reading needs are fairly basic. I use JAWS at work because my workplace pays for the licenses and because its Braille translation is still the best on the market. This is pretty important for me, as my job involves editing Braille files, so the translation has to be perfect. 
But for personal use, I find NVDA more meets my needs. It's easy to install, can be updated in perpetuity, either for free or for a small voluntary donation, can be installed from a flash drive if you don't have the internet up and running, and doesn't require authorization. Also, as a JAWS user, the adjustment to NVDA is minimal, as almost all the keystrokes are the same. I admit that the original voice sounds like a robot in a tin can, but it's pretty easy to add on synthesized voices, including the original JAWS voice. I absolutely get your point about funding bodies tending to lean towards free products wherever they can get away with it. But it's the responsibility of the person requesting the funding to be able to argue their case as to why they need JAWS as opposed to a free screen reader. I imagine that a person with your advanced computing needs would be able to do this with no trouble. It also may be that some people who really only use a computer to read email, browse the web, and compose simple documents would do just as well with a free screen reader. The money saved could be used to purchase other tech, such as a Braille display. My brother uses NVDA all the time, particularly for his work in the Pacific. Among other things, part of his work involves introducing blind children and adults to laptops with screen readers. Often, he has to source the technology himself. When he first started out, there was no such thing as NVDA. He had to solicit donations of JAWS from the distributors, who were reluctant and often only gave him one or two authorizations. Often, the internet in Pacific countries is unreliable, and it was more so back then. So at least a day of his already limited teaching time was wasted installing JAWS on computers where the internet went out when it rained. Then NVDA came along, and it was a game-changer. He had unlimited access to his screen-reading technology that could be installed from a flash drive onto multiple computers, and it could be updated in perpetuity. There will come a day when narrator is at least as good as voiceover. I'll be as happy as anyone when that day comes, because it would be great if Windows had accessibility built into its products the way Apple does. But until then, I'm glad that there are people who are committed to producing free, open-source software that is easy to get and install. Thanks, Tristan. Very well-articulated and thoughtful message. And actually, I don't disagree with very much of that. The one thing I do disagree with, though, is the comment about working with funders to get the technology that you need. If you do have vocational aspirations, it is really important to spend that time when trying to find a job as your full-time job using the technology that is likely to stand you in good stead for your job so that when that big job offer does come along, and we all know how difficult those job offers can be to obtain in the first place, you are able to hit the ground running because you are proficient with JAWS. And if you get into a situation where you've got some proprietary software that only JAWS will work with through scripting, etc., then you're going to be in a good position to take advantage of it. So that's the first thing. We have to think not just about what we're doing now with our computer, but where we aim to be. For those in 
countries where um, funding is an issue in, in developing countries, for example, then you know, I absolutely take the point and it's wonderful when any accessibility can be afforded to more people. Although you look at a country like Colombia where the government in Colombia brought a site license which covers the whole country and there's another country that did that as well recently, I think. That is a pretty cool thing where basically the government has decided that every citizen who needs it in a particular country should be entitled to the best screen reading possible. And if you're in one of those countries, you can get it for free. And I think that that should be a model that we encourage other governments to follow as well. But in terms of advocacy, I mean, you're absolutely right. If I needed my jaws to be funded somebody like me would have no trouble at all making the case, partly because I understand the technology and partly because I'm not exactly backward about stating my opinions. But it's a pretty high bar for quite a lot of people who know that they need JAWS because of the situation that they're going into, but who may not have the words to articulate it. They may not have the computer confidence. They may feel quite daunted by the system. And so that's why I think it's perhaps a little unfair of us to rely on how easy it is for us to articulate our needs. It is important, I think, that funders understand this use case, the employment use case, and that we don't have to go justifying something that is so important, especially at a time when a job offer is waiting. Ian Lackey says, I have just listened to the most recent episode of the new podcast and thought I would throw in my thoughts on the Opticon. It is many years now since I used one and I really wouldn't like to use one again. However, for a number of reasons, I wouldn't have been able to do my job without it. The problem was that it was just such hard work. And being a sucker for softer options, when that softer option came along, I eagerly grabbed it. Despite the hard labour it entailed, there was one thing Opticon did that I think nothing else has done since. Nothing has given me the same appreciation of what print actually looks like in the way that Opticon did. I would never have realised that there can be so many typefaces and fonts without it. If we take, for example, italics, in Braille, this has to be represented by symbols at the beginning and end of the italicized string. With the Opticon, you can actually feel the slope of the italicized string. You could really understand why uppercase is called uppercase. There is no doubt that when it came on the scene, the Opticon really was a game changer. However, I don't think we will see an Opticon revival anytime soon. And that wraps up a long and hopefully informative edition of the Mosin at Large podcast. Thanks very much for listening. To be in touch, Jonathan at mushroomfm.com by email or 864-60-MOSIN on the listener line. And we'll see you next week for another edition. Mosin.